1: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen McCaff, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the silent tea party edition. It's Wednesday, April 16th, 2014. On today's show, Gaining a Network, Losing a Persona, we'll discuss the ins and outs of Stephen Colbert replacing David Letterman. And then we'll discuss the legacy of John Updike with his new biographer, Adam Begley. And finally, Julia, Dana, and Jacob took a field trip to the Guggenheim Museum to explore that museum's overview of Italian futurism. Joining me today is Slate's deputy editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi,
0: Steve. And uh,
1: wonderful lanyapé, <laughs> Jacob Weisberg, the chairman of the Slate group, is sitting in for Dana. Wait,
0: can he be hey, a, a lanyapé?
1: Is he a lanyapé? I don't think so. That's, like,
2: I... that's the 13th bagel
1: in a bag of the 12. baker's right? dozen. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm happy to be an extra bagel Are you for a, you today. you a Guga or a <laughs> oh, What is he? Julia? It's getting worse. Uh, I think I'll stick with lanyapé. <laughs>
1: You're of the prize in the Cracker Jack.
2: Anyway. He's, just,
0: he's just my boss.
2: Exactly. I'm, yes, and, and that's exactly how they think of me here.
1: You've seen my suck-up skills and now know why I've gotten nowhere in life. Um, all right. Anyway, it seemed like only minutes after David Letterman announced his retirement that CBS followed it up by disclosing Stephen Colbert as his successor. Colbert, of course, plays a bloviating right-wing idiot on his show The Colbert Report. And has, uh, and has scarcely been seen out of character in the nine years that he's been killing it on Comedy Central. Though anyone who loves Colbert knows that behind the shtick is a, and these adjectives don't typically go together, thoughtful, multi-talented, devoutly religious, and impish human being. We are losing a satirical creation of the highest order and gaining a what? Julia Turner.
0: I don't know yet, but I'm so excited to see. I think Stephen Colbert is massively talented. I've been a longtime fan of his Christmas special where he played sort of a uh, – kind of creating a Mr. s cardigan wearing – Uh, family values-ish version of himself. It was related to his uh, TV show persona, but slightly distinct, I think. And he brought in, for example, John Legend to write a hilarious uh, and graphically sexual song about nutmeg and its (laughs) its role in holiday desserts, which was just silly and got stuck in my head weirdly for about 16 months. Mm. So listen at your peril. But I just think he... He reminds me of Neil Patrick Harris. Like He can do song and dance and comedy. He kind of has like got a musical theater nerd underpinning in addition to great writing chops and just super warm, fuzzy instincts. I mean, that, I think, is part of what's made his persona work so well is that he's playing a blowhard asshole and he's so clearly just a super smart teddy bear underneath and that disjuncture has been really fun to watch.
1: Yeah, I mean, Jacob, that seems to me the essence of it, right? When uh, The irony here is that when he first got the gig... Uh, people thought, well, what can you really pull through this tiny little keyhole? And now we've seen what you can pull, which is a, r- a remarkable, I mean, an enormous and lovable personality has come through that little keyhole. And now everyone is wondering, what's he going to do without the keyhole, which is kind
2: of funny, but he'll do something wonderful, right? <laughs> well, you know, when the, I remember when the show came on, watching it and thinking, this is great, but how can he possibly sustain this shtick? And in fact, he's turned it into one of the greatest sustained pieces of performance art that's ever been seen anywhere. I mean, it's unbelievable the energy he brings to it, the quickness of his wit, and the way he has kept this character going. The degree of difficulty of that was like a 10. Mm-hmm. He's now doing something that has a degree of difficulty of about a 3. However, you do wonder this guy has been doing this thing that's pure genius. I mean, I really think he is the, the most talented person on American television. And the fact that he's, everyone thinks he's a hell of a nice guy is sort of is icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. But you know, he's been doing this really, really hard thing with unbelievable brilliance. Now he's doing something that seems kind of like rolling off a log. And the question is, is that going to put his talent... To good
0: use. I don't know. I feel like anyone who thinks that running a successful late night show in this day and age is the equivalent of rolling off a log, I don't, that <laughs> doesn't seem quite right to me, Jacob, because those guys are most of them rolling off a log, and it's super boring, and fewer and fewer people are watching, and the audience is dwindling. I mean, I think to make this relevant, Les Moonves, uh, the head of CBS who was interviewed about this, um, said he felt he'd made a 20-year decision, and he was very confident about this. For this show to work for 20 years, I think Colbert is going to have to do something more interesting than just you know sit behind a desk and interview Kate Hudson.
2: Well, let's – yeah, I'll frame it a little differently. Can he create a show that I will want to watch? I mean, for me, the the bar – the barrier to watching television with commercials is almost insuperably high. I will actually sit through commercials to watch Colbert from time to time because he's so great. I will not do that for any other late night show host. Can he do something that will make me, and I, I don't know if I speak for anybody else here, but sort of. Tune in at a at a destination time because these shows you don't watch you don't set your your DVR and watch them the next day. I mean either you get them when they're happening or you don't watch them.
0: No, but dig you can start them ten minutes late and then you just fast forward the commercial <laughs> and you're still in bed by eleven. Or by the
1: way, the vast majority of people now experience these shows in little bits the next day or or in the following week on the internet. Right? This is a huge part of the business model. That it's, is more true to my yeah, experience, and
0: I I will say that is a place where I think Jimmy Fallon may have a certain leg up on colbert at least as his show has been currently conceived because fallon makes these fallon's doing basically sketch comedy he's doing stuff where he gets big stars in and they do something funny and it's almost like a successful snl sketch the best the best of his little bits that go viral are kind of like a better snl sketch what colbert is doing is so sustained there's so many throwbacks to earlier moments in the show it's so clever it's a little bit hard to pull out moments from it and have them Go viral in quite the same way. I think you're really watching a segment of a TV show. It's not a sketch or a joke. And you know, I I probably watch fewer of his bits online the next day than I do Jimmy Fallon. I'm a I'm a bit
1: watcher. That's how I experience Colbert. But but the question I think Jacob is not only how is he going to retain you. It's how is he going to get. And eat into the Leno audience and retain the Letterman audience while not losing you or me, right? That, that's the challenge is, is that he now needs an audience, I would guess, orders of magnitude larger than the one that he currently has. He cannot be a niche product anymore. And he probably can't be quite so politically
2: barbed. I mean, he does a super smart show and the late night shows and some of them are very good, but they're not shows for smart people they're shows for everybody. They're for a mass audience, right? I think Fallon's a great entertainer. Letterman's massively talented. I mean, these people all, it's not that it's not skilled or difficult, but it's not brain food. And everything he's done has had a really significant component of just smartness and commentary on politics and society. That's not part of the mix right now of late night shows. Do you think he's going to be able to bring that in?
0: One thing I loved about how this happened, though, was the massive consensus around it. I mean, I've never seen anything like this in late night television. Weirdly, the business stories behind late night television have become like one of the fascinating media narratives of our time. They've spawned these two great books by Bill Carter, one about the original fight between Leno and Letterman, and then the subsequent one about Conan getting screwed. These are great books. They're fascinating reads. And I'm just thinking, poor (laughs) Bill Carter. Like, what is he going to write about? It's like, (laughs) Letterman's out on Thursday. Colbert's in on, you know, a week later. Les Moonves is like, great. Everybody in the industry is like, perfect, fantastic choice. This is going to be like a very slim pamphlet about this transition. The only note of dissent, I think, comes from conservatives, including, you know, some of Slate's House conservatives have been have been discussing this on our email aliases. Republicans do not like Stephen Colbert. They mm-hmm. do not like the way he has ribbed them, ribbed their cause. And there is a sense almost that the late night hosts should be these, you know, genteel societal ombudsmen who who can hear all sides and, and shouldn't come at it with a sharp political angle, even though obviously these guys are skewering everybody. But, you know, even Leno, who was a noted conservative skewered people on both sides of the aisle. There's just kind of a general sense that, that you don't come into this with a ideological gun blazing. So there has been this response that, uh, that this was in a completely inappropriate move by CBS. What do you guys make of, of those claims?
2: Well, I weirdly don't think Colbert's actually much of a liberal. I mean, I think he's found his target on the right. I think he's probably a sensible centrist. He's a Catholic. I think some of his views would probably be conservative and considered centrist or conservative in a rational universe. But I think that the target was on the right. They're much more easy to parody. There is no left-wing Bill O'Reilly. He could have built this persona or the show around. I mean, there really are – I don't think there's any liberal, liberal blowhard who is successful at the level of Rush Limbaugh or O'Reilly, who you could do this with. But it is also just a phenomenon that if you regard him as a performance artist, there are no right-wing performance artists. It's a, it's a left-wing form. Yeah.
1: I'm still reeling from the idea that Slate has house conservatives. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that is that in distinction from field conservatives? <laughs> 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 All right. Well, Stephen Colbert is taking over for David Letterman. Uh, it's called technically – the or not technically. Its actual name is The Late Show. Is that right? It is. In 2015. So we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about it again then. But in the meantime, come to our Facebook page and tell us what you think about Stephen Colbert and his persona and what it might be like for him to lose it. We're at Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have?
0: Our sponsor this week, Steve, is Audible. Audible, as our listeners know, is the Internet's leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment. They have more than 150,000 titles in their catalog, and you can listen to them on any sort of digital device, including, I'm sure, whatever it is you're using to listen to us right now. Audible has a special deal for our listeners. If you go and sign up, you'll get a free monthly trial and a free audio book. They'll also offer you subscription to the Daily Audio Digest from either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, which Gail Collins, who was recently a guest on the Political Gab Fest, mentioned she listens to every day walking into work at the New York Times. I've never heard such a good ad for the New York Times Daily Audio Digest. Mm. We are also collecting here at Slate something we're calling the Culture Gab Fest Bucket List. This is the list from Stephen, Dana, and me of books that you must read to be considered a uh, Basically worthy for Stephen to talk to like don't even, don't even show up if you haven't read all this stuff and audio, listening to audiobooks is a great way obviously to get through some of the things that are on your list of want to read uh, but may have previously fallen into the don 't have time to read category because listening to audiobooks doubles or triples the amount of time you can spend in your life listening to and and sucking the information of books into your brain. I know Jacob is a huge audiobook listener and, and can attest to his increased book ingesting capacities as an audiobook listener.
2: Uh, I, I, I yield to uh, no one in my my audible consumption. It's I get more reading done that way than any other way now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is the service. You've got the free trial chalked up. Here is our edition for the Culture Gabfest bucket list today, and it's from me. A book that you should have read, and the sort of book that maybe you wouldn't pick up if you haven't read it already, is The Odyssey. By Homer. This is perhaps <laughs> right. the first thing that we've put on the list that actually was intended to be read aloud, right? It's a, it's a ballad that was recited and passed down by oral tradition for years and years, or at least as far as we know, that's what we think is true. There are a bunch of different versions of the Odyssey available on Audible. I think the popular opinion is that the Fagels translation is the best, and there's a version of that online uh, with Ian McKellen reading it. That sounds uh, pretty hard to pass up, but I'm going to be alone, hold out for the Fitzgerald translation, which I just like better. I think it's a little bit looser, a little bit more colloquial, very fun to listen to. Uh, and it is read by a Dan Stevens, who I'm going to assume is the Dan Stevens, <laughs> who played uh, Dearly Departed and Beloved Matthew Crowley on Downton Abbey. So if you've got a thing for Dan Stevens, and as fans of Dana Stevens, how can you not have a thing for Dan Stevens? <laughs> Maybe try the Fitzgerald. But anyway, there's, there's a bunch of odysseys on there. Uh, you can check them out and get them for free. Again, the deal is a free monthly trial, a free audio book. Free subscription to the Daily Audio Digest of the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and you can get all that at Audible Podcast.com/slash culturefest. All right, Steve, what's next?
1: All right, Julia, thanks a lot. Okay, moving on. During his long career as a preeminent, perhaps the preeminent American man of letters, John Updike won two poets prizes, two National Book Awards, three National Book Critics Circle Awards. He published twenty novels, many collections of short stories, criticism, and poetry. I especially love mm-hmm. the criticism. My old editor at the New York Observer and very good friend, Adam Begley, has published the first biography of Mr. Updike, who died in 2009. Titled simply Updike, it has been called a superb achievement by the editor of the Atlantic Monthly, and it cast a spell, apparently, on Orhan Pamuk. Is that how you pronounce that? I would. (laughs) (laughs) The Nobel Prize winner, whose review comes out this Sunday in the New York Times, Adam, welcome to the show thanks for having me. What an amazing pleasure to have you here. Let me begin by um, speaking for every author in America and ask you, how did you get away with not having a subtitle?
3: Well, (laughs) I I actually proposed many subtitles, all of which didn't quite fit the bill. And my editor, who's a man of genius at Harper, said, look, you know what, let's just call it Updike. And it was as though the curtains had been thrown back and the light shone in and it was obvious. Mm -hmm. Oh, well done. And also, I should say, you, you knew uh, John Updike
1: glancingly and have some charming stories. And everyone begin, every interview I've heard so far begins with someone asking about one of those charming stories. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to throw a number at you instead. And I want you to tell me what you think the significance of it is. J.D. Salinger published 13 short stories over his career in The New Yorker, and John Updike published 146. Tell me why that's an interesting fact.
3: I'm so glad you didn't ask me to do mathematics with those two numbers. (laughs) Um, It's an interesting fact because, you know, Updike simply became the New Yorker's golden boy and became associated with the New Yorker in a way that was interesting for his career and in other ways a little bit um, uncomfortable for him. Mm -hmm. He um, was an only child, you know, and he always wanted to shine on his own, and something about being associated with The New Yorker made him feel like he was part of a corporate excellence, Mm. and he wanted individual excellence. Mm -hmm.
1: And we should say also he distanced himself from The New Yorker in another way, which was
3: very important to his self-creation as a writer. You mean by leaving New York? Yeah. I think that leaving New York was, in some ways, I mean, it was in many ways wanting to get out of town, but in another way, I think it was an attempt to distance himself from the magazine, which otherwise tends to... Engulf people. The comparison would be with Brendan Gill, who had been there twenty years when Updike arrived and was to stay on another thirty years. He was a writer of some promise when he arrived. Um, By the time he left, he was um, a a function of the New Yorker.
1: Mm -hmm. I've approached this too obliquely. Did you feel in writing the first biography of Updike that you were approaching? a reputational problem that he has that's involved with his how prolific he was and what a star he was, that in some ways writing seemed to come to him too easily. He applied himself to it too assiduously and in that way produced a body of work that many people find either overwhelming or it lacks a single great work in a way.
3: Well, there are a couple of questions in there, but I think that it's true that we're all attached to the romantic image of the tortured poet and that we need to think of our artists as suffering to create art and where there's no sweat, where... Updike sits down at his desk and churns out a novel as an afternoon's work. It looks very suspicious. And then there's the question of sheer volume. People are intimidated, and there's a little Updike fatigue going on when the the next short story comes out in the New Yorker or the next novel comes out. People say enough already. In fact, enough is a very important Updike word. The last word of the Rabbit tetralogy. <laughs>
4: So
1: what did you discover? Did you discover a surprise hidden cache of sweat in uh,
3: Updike's life? There was a surprise about his seemingly effortless industry, which is that it wasn't as smooth in the beginning as it looked like. There turns out to have been... Three novels attempted and abandoned before the first one was published. One he wrote started writing at Harvard when he was an undergraduate. The second, while he was working as a staff writer at the New Yorker called Home, 600 pages into the drawer. And the third, shortly thereafter, called Go Away. Um, the manuscripts of the last two exist in the Houghton Library at Harvard. The first one is lost to posterity. Mm.
2: Well, I was curious about those, Adam. Have you, having read those two, uh, very few people
3: have. Should they be published or you haven't read them? No, I've read the work of a critic I trust who was allowed in by Updike to see Home, oh. the 600-pager. But everybody else is barred from seeing that for the next 30 years unless they um, attract the favorable attentions of the Updike estate. And based on your book, the reaction so far, is that likely or unlikely for you? I think I'm done with Updike mm-hmm. in some ways. I'm not sure I'm going to go back into the library and read unpublished Updike. I, I think that um, I might move on.
2: It's a it's a funny complaint about Updike that he that it came too easy for him. I mean, nobody makes that complaint about Mozart or you know other marvelously productive artists. But it is it is true. And I wonder if it's partly because there's so much Updike and it's all at least good that you can't, as a reader, sort of own his work. If you're, if you're a Roth fan or a Bellow fan, you've probably read it all. It won't, it won't dominate your life. But, but it is really, to take on the project of reading all of Updike would be a massive, massive undertaking.
3: Yeah, especially if you read slowly, as I do. But um, the, I think that there's a way into owning Updike, which a lot of people use, um, which is to, to read the tetralogy, read the rabbit books, um, and then you have a sense of uh, because they they were written over four decades, you have a sense of his whole career in one shot though I actually have a plan for people who want to start doing that which is not to start with the first one but to start with the third one, Rabbit is Rich and then have then read Rabbit at Rest and then circle back.
0: This is like George Lucas and mm-hmm. the, in the mm-hmm. official order of the Star Wars books now. You're, you're revising
3: history. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm revising history. One of the virtues of my plan is that you end up with, with my favorite rabbit book, which is Rabbit Redux, ah. which is an explosion of sexual, racial, and social energy in otherwise rather placid world of uh, rabbit Harry Angstrom.
0: I have to, to, to raise my... Um my non-Y chromosome having finger here <laughs> and and just say, I'm a massive Updike fan. I'm not. His sentences are mesmerizing. I love what work of his I've read. But Rabbit Redux was a harder read for me because I think the question that a lot of Updike's critics raise, which is, is he a brilliant writer with interesting things to say about sex and gender relations among many other topics? Or is he a prurient weirdo who writes great sentences? <laughs> Well framed. My general answer to that is that he's a brilliant person with interesting things mm-hmm. to say. After reading Rabbit Redux, I began to feel like the shading between Rabbit and Updike was a little thinner than than maybe I had felt in other works. And I wonder how you felt approaching that question, which I think is a common one to ask about his purported misogyny, his attitudes towards sex as you as you went through the biography.
3: One of the disappointments for me was reading the early works of Updike. You, I ran into female character after female character who was described as dumb or um, passive, who was simply an object of the male gaze. But as you go along, you see Updike realizing what he's done and beginning to infest his women with a life and a point of view that makes a difference. And so if you take, for example, Janice, the, um, Harry Angstrom's wife, in Rabbit Run. She's a pathetic creature, really. And by the time you get to Rabbit at Rest, or even more, the little sequel he wrote, Rabbit Remembered, you have an in, a, an entirely rounded, um, sentient uh, feeling, you know, a, a human being you want to see through. And I think that that's a measure of his development. I mean, he reacted to the feminist criticisms that were leveled against him in a way that I think was admirable. I, I think he became the intelligent man with interesting things to say about gender and sex. But he possibly started out as, in, in the memorable words of David Foster Wallace, um, a penis with a thesaurus. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, I'm getting you, you've been a
2: little quiet. I'm getting the feeling that maybe you're not as much of an updike lover. And I just wonder where you come out.
1: Well, I have a ridiculously reductive and facile theory about dyads in the history of the arts. And so occasionally a choice is foisted upon the listener or the reader. So Mozart or Beethoven, they, they seem to represent Beethoven is heavy, romantic, interior, the only way out is through. Uh, Mozart is light, facile, brilliant, the voice of God virtually untrammeled by human interference. Lennon or McCartney Obviously, maybe Dostoevsky or Tolstoy would be another one. I, it just seems to me that Roth and Updike are the great dyad of American letters of the past couple of generations or the post-war era. And for whatever reason, I'm, I'm more attracted to Roth as a writer uh, uh, than I am Updike. But I admire Updike I mean, the same way that one has to admire Dostoevsky no matter how much you love or worship or prefer Tolstoy. It's a comment on one's own temperament and not on some intrinsic quality of the – uh, artists certainly not in any, in, in any ranked way uh, and that's just the way I feel so I have very little to say about
3: him in some ways Adam, cure me of this I mean well it's Passover we should talk about Henry Beck <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, you know the, you, if you, I think if you went into Beck and read Updike's Jewish alter ego you might get a little you know angle on how Updike and Roth rubbed each other hmm. happily and unhappily um, and maybe I don't know. Maybe you'd go for and as well, as and in both as well as either or. Well, here's the question: Is there?
1: Do you credit the story that Roth, after a, a scathing review by Updike of Operation Shylock, had to check himself into a mental hospital? There's some controversy about whether they <laughs> were rubbing each other quite that.
3: According to Claire Bloom, his ex-wife, Roth's ex-wife, he actually wrote on the admission sheet for the psychiatric hospital that he checked into that the cause was Updike's review in the New Yorker of Operation Shylock. I I guess it's up to Blake Bailey to go in and if he has permission to check the psychiatric records and find out. Um,
0: and we should note that Roth recently wrote into the New York Times from seclusion in Connecticut to, that
3: story. He, to and, uh, strongly contest the claim. And he denied it to me, and I, and I dutifully recorded that denial in my book. But, you know, I think that this is a question where there is a, a written record, and if it proves that there's no such um, annotation on his admission sheet, then Claire Boom was perhaps just being a uh, wronged and vengeful wife, ex-wife. Mm-hmm. I think they have more
2: in common than people think. I mean, obviously, there are big differences. You know, Updike doesn't do game-playing metafiction, and he doesn't do the kind of, you know, broad Jewish humor that Roth does where you can write a book around a a punchline. Um, But – When you look at their books as social histories and as records of the period, they actually have a lot in common in the way they describe towns in America, the way they describe the places they're from. Interestingly, the same part of the country. But I find, as I read them, less and less
3: distinction. There's also not only towns and what Roth and Updike both did brilliantly well at describing how people work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, listen,
1: we've doubled back around, and now I think you have to tell, even though I know you're retelling it, uh, the story of how you first met John Updike.
3: Well, my parents and the Updikes were friendly um, right after college in the very early 60s when I was a baby. And one day I was sitting in my parents' house in some sort of baby contraption next to a bowl of fruit and Updike walked into the room, looked at me, looked at the bowl of fruit, and decided to pick up three oranges and start to juggle. And this had a profound effect on me. I started to laugh, a big belly laughter, and according to family legend, this was the first time I had ever laughed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a wonderful story. Adam, congratulations on the book. It's a triumph. It's called Updike. It's the first biography of John Updike, Adam Begley. Thank you so much for coming in to talk with us.
3: Oh, thanks for having
1: me. All right, Julia, I know you have some business to take care of here. What do you got?
0: I'm here hat in hand. I'm asking our listeners for a favor. The Slate Podcasts have been nominated for a Webby, which is very exciting. But we are up against some powerhouses like the BBC and NPR, big arm swinging titans of radio uh, and broadcast. So we need your help. We We want to win this award. It would make us happy. So go to slate dot com slash webby. It will take you to where you can vote for Slate's podcasts to be victorious in our Webby contest. Again, the URL is slate dot com slash webby. Vote Slate, unless you really love the BBC. But come on, vote <laughs> Slate. We're the ones who told you about it. And then Steve, for our next segment, you're leaving us, right? You uh, that we recorded this previously. Uh, on a day when you could not make it.
1: It's true. I, I flaked out.
0: Jacob and I were there at the Guggenheim discussing futurism, and we have an exciting guest that our listeners will be familiar with.
1: It's because I already know everything about futurism, and I thought it was best if I just didn't. You, <laughs> you would have been competing with the
0: curator. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. We didn't want to make her uncomfortable. Precisely. All right, let's uh, cue the tape. <laughs> For this segment of our show, we are at the Guggenheim Museum with Vivian Green, and we have a slight cast change. Dana Stevens is here with us. We're checking out Italian Futurism, 1909 to 1944, which is an exhibit spanning the whole Guggenheim Museum, and it's up until September 1. Uh, And we're here with the curator, Vivian Green, to talk to her about the show, putting it together, the history of futurism, the future of futurism, and the rest. Uh, Vivian, thank you so much for having us. And thank you so much for having me on the show. I should note before we start interviewing Vivian Green that we're recording in the amazing space, the Guggenheim Museum on Fifth Avenue in New York, Uh, so you'll hear some cavernous echoing and and a a fountain burbling that may stop burbling at some point, so bear with the the atmospheric noise behind us. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the origins of the exhibit, um, why you guys decided to put one together, and, and how it came together.
5: Well the impetus was that there's not been a large-scale exhibition on Italian futurism in the United States ever. The last exhibition on Italian futurism in New York not just on an artist but on the movement was in 1961 and that was only focused however on painting and sculpture of of the teens, of what's called the heroic years of futurism. So what we propose to do and what we have done is organize an exhibition that looks at all of futurism from its inception in 1909 with the publication of the founding manifesto by F.T. Marinetti, the movement's founder through to its end which happens with both Marinetti's death at the end of 1944 and of course Italy's defeat in World War II at the beginning of 1945. Beyond that, we also look at futurism in all of its multiple languages because there's been a tendency to only look at painting and/or a little bit of literature and ex- instead, the movement programmatically began and founded as, as a cultural movement, a political one, so it touched every aspect of life. and so we attempt to do that with our presentation. Yeah, I love, as you walk through the exhibit, you
0: see painting, you see sculpture, you see pamphlets, you hear spoken word performances, you see a coffee set, you see an armoire, you see uh, embroidered vests. Uh, There's kind of a range of products and approaches here. Remind our listeners what the animating idea behind futurism, what was the thrust of the Marinetti Manifesto? Uh,
5: Marinetti's founding manifesto really was about having Italy become modern, if, if you have to sum it up in just a few words. But his ideas for that were uh, very provocative, and purposefully so, and very disruptive. So there was an embrace of war and violence, a scorn for women, a call to abolish the past, down with tradition and museums, in fact, and libraries. But the push behind this was, of course, that Italy had unified so recently in 1860, depending on... What you count as a fully unified peninsula, and a lot of the promises of that unification movement, the Risorgimento, had not been fulfilled, and Italy had remained a, a rather backwards country vis-à-vis it, its European counterparts. So there was a lot of insecurity, a feeling that Italy was an impotent, sort of feminized country, and Manin really wanted to break out of that and look to the industrial modern city and, of course, to have an identity that was specifically Italian because also Italy was really struggling with its identity as a country and looking to the past to forge that identity. But, of course, that made it seem like a stale, old-fashioned, again, backwards-looking country and he wanted it to be a place that looked forward.
2: Vivian, when you read that manifesto, which interestingly was published in France... On the front page of Le Figaro for a French audience rather than Italy, it's sort of vile, right? I mean, it's exalting war and violence and misogyny and hating the past. And it seems uh, beyond provocative. It seems it's hard to believe anybody really believed that. How sincere was Marinetti in saying these things and how much was he just trying to get everybody's attention?
5: That's a very good point. and In fact, I wish uh, more journalists would take note because some people tend to take what the manifesto says very literally. And in fact, in some instances, it, he is being a provocateur. For it. it is to provoke the bourgeoisie. It is very anti-bourgeoisie. It is to really shock people. And so it was a shock tactic. It wasn't necessarily that all of those claims were things Marinetti religiously believed in. Moreover, that was one of many manifesti that followed, and certainly they did not, the futurists did not stick to those 11 points that are outlined within the text of, of the manifesto Was a longer narrative throughout their 35-year career, and, and I, I mean, for example, the scorn for women. woman, I think we'd say is overturned by the time Marinetti marries Benedetta, who is a woman artist, and, and very actively so, so I think the sentiment was sincere in in the desire, again, to shock people into change. Yeah.
2: At, at the same time, if you ask most people to play the word association game, they hear futurism and they say fascism. And obviously, Marinetti was one of the influences on Mussolini. How do you, having worked on this for so much time, how, how have you come to think of the relationship between futurism and fascism?
5: <laughs> As a very complicated one. But I'm so glad that you just said what you did, which is a lot of people think that the futurists sort of signed on to the fascist boat. But in fact, one of the reasons we associate futurism and fascism is that fascism took a lot of tactics from futurism. So it worked the other way around. Of course, when the futurists began, they were all of the left, but as many of the extreme left to go around the backs to the right is not so far away. Being part of the interventionist movement that wanted Italy to uh, negate its neutral stance at the beginning of World War I and enter the war uh, led to an alliance or, uh, between Marinetti and Mussolini, among others. Um, But what I really learned along the way is that there were many different types of futurism and fascism. And in a way, you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. Marinetti's own relationship to fascism was pretty fraught. He didn't really want to uh, share a stage with Mussolini. He um, didn't agree with all of the really founding tenets of fascism. Um, But through the 20s, there were futurists who were still staunchly left wing such as Panaji, and there are certain people who in fact have to leave the country what's interesting and also paradoxical and in fact that's one of the leitmotifs of the show is sort of the idea of paradox and contradiction because that's very much futurism and I'd say Italian culture as well and I'm half Italian so I, I get to say that but um, is that the, the futurists were not <laughs> the chosen art of the fascists and in fact the fascists really preferred the classicizing artists that belong to that group or movement we associate with the Turn to order. So we associate those two things in our minds, but in fact they're not so well um, tied together. What they both are, and I think one of the reasons we put them in, we, we put the two together, is they were strident, stridently nationalistic. It was beyond patriotism. So I think that incredible, aggressive nationalism was a real powerful bond in terms of the more conceptual side of, the, of both movements.
4: Something that strikes me walking through when speaking of paradox is that this just seems like a distillation of every modernist movement you could think of. You know, you see Cubism in there and Surrealism and Dada and, I don't know, concrete poetry and just basically every sort of avant-garde of the 20th century seems like it has some sort of, I'm not going to say its roots or its seeds because some of, it, some of this is in turn imitating earlier forms, but it's all in there somewhere.
5: No, you're absolutely right, and it's true. In some cases, uh, the futurists look to somebody, such as with, in the case of Cubism. In other cases, another is not like Dada looked to futurism, but it's definitely, a, it's a movement. I mean, Marinetti was a genius because he really disseminated futurist ideas across Europe and, in fact, the world. Uh, the manifesto, the leaflet, was such an easy way to... Communicate and, think, and they were translated into many languages, including uh, the founding manifesto was translated into Japanese already I think in one thousand nine hundred nine when it was the, when it came out uh, so the this sort of circulation of ideas and and also their, their very provocative performances early on and, and they took their show on the road they toured their painting, they toured some of the performances of uh, Russolo who was a painter but also uh, a, an amateur musician and, and invented these noise making machines called Intona Rumori and created compositions for them and really was the first composer to use noise and sound as as, as a composition, I mean long before we have John Cage, so...
1: <laughs> ro, 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 ro.
4: So Vivian, I wanted to ask you about one of my favourite rooms and spaces in this exhibit which is the what I think of as the Stravinsky Room, a room where you, you walk into a sort of um, small theater not a proscenium stage but a little sort of um, Greek theater type setup with lights and some beautiful music by Stravinsky and his recreation of a theatrical piece I wanted you to tell us about which fascinated me because it had no dancers it was theater without any humans in it
5: yes exactly um uh, in fact, and I would, we, we call this an evocation, because we don't exactly know what it would have been like to be able to use the word recreation. But, uh, in, in the teens, uh, Stravinsky and uh, Diaghilev of the Ballet Russe, uh, become intrigued by the futurists. Diaghilev uh, commissions Giacomo Balla, who was a first-generation futurist, but one who is active throughout the whole life of the movement, to uh, create something for Stravinsky's Fodaktifis fireworks, which is actually a very short piece of music. It's only about six minutes. And Bala comes up with this incredible set design which is very colorful, just abstract geomet- geometric shapes. So to that point of abstraction, he is the one who does abstract things. And uh, and then with this incredible lighting design. and uh, But it's a whole performance doesn't involve dance, which of course when we think of the ballet russe, uh, the word ballet, you, you imagine dancers. And this really uh, uses lighting to, as, as it's ...as its actors. The irony is that Bala... um, ...this was a big failure. It um, premiered... ...and uh, in fact dress rehearsal went very well and that's where all the journalists were to write the reviews and then in the evening there was um, some kind of shopero strike of course, (laughs) it's Italy, you know and with the technicians and I think also some technical problems and so the music is playing but the set isn't doing anything, there's no lighting and Bala runs to the lighting boards halfway through the set but he was an artist, I don't think he really knew the ins and outs of how to run it properly, uh, do do lighting cues and so it was an utter failure and it was never done again and yet It remains, it remains one of the most sort of important performances uh, for futurism, just because of the the use of lights and the place of actors and, and this very, again, immersive experience. It's it's a little sort of 1960s Jimi Hendrix. I'm on acid, you know. So I think yeah, that, that this has a, happening, and it freaks me out. <laughs>
2: Tenuta,
1: tenuta.
0: All right, so Ro. we've moved to Ro. a work Ro. that Ro. Ro. Vivian Ro. is Ro. going to introduce Ro. us Ro. to Ro. now. Ro.
5: Ro. So I, I thought it would be interesting to look at Fortunato de Pero since uh, this is actually a series of charcoals that he made for illustrations for a book by a Swiss Egyptologist named Gilbert Clavel, uh, in English, entitled "An Institute for Suicides," and it shows you that Futurism does have a sort of Janus face. So there, there, there is this uh, more um, almost proto-surrealist look to some of Depero's work, and these very mysterious f- figures. This actual, hun- actually, this hunchback figure. But I wanted to stop here because this Clavel. Uh, was gay and lived on Capri and was part of this very international intellectual circle that hung out there. And he goes to DePero's studio and sees this very kind of weird, quirky work that he does. Um, and, and Clavel is very captured by that and was running this book, Institute for Suicides, which was about a man who was quite ill and goes to a sort of Swiss sanatorium, as it were, to commit suicide. And there you could choose the ways you committed suicide, which included suicide by drug overdose, by alcohol overdose, or by sex overdose. So it's this very, again, kind of proto-surrealist novel. And when he saw DiPero's work, he, he he said, you're the one who has to illustrate my book. And and he and DiPero De actually developed a very strong friendship, and um, interestingly, uh, Clavel had a curv- really severe curvature of the spine, a whole series of illnesses, Which so the book ends up being very autobiographical, but it introduces the, the fact that with, with futurism, as we were saying before, you can see a lot of other elements of other avant-garde, and in some instances it's just that certain artists had such a really Kind of specific stylistic approach um, and, and Depero is one of those. I mean he brings something so different to the table than anyone else that, that we that you look at um, and I think some would question, is his work really futurist except that he calls himself a futurist and is associated with the movement and conceptually and theoretically. ...practices everything futurist, like the idea of the total work of art. De is one of the ones who really promotes that. He's the one who co-authors the manifesto about the futurist reconstruction of the universe. He, like Bala, is one of the first to start a casa d'arte, an art house... ...where they actually make kind of artisanal things... ...so you could have futurism in your home... ...because the idea was to redo everything futurist. Um, But I just wanted to bring up sort of this this difference... ...that can also exist within the movement.
3: Piedigrotta!
1: del
4: I know there was one quote from the, the original Marinetti's 1909 Futurist Manifesto that I scribbled down just because it made me laugh, because I know so many film critics, I'm a film critic, so many other film critics who still operate by this principle, and it's this, no work that lacks an aggressive character can be considered a masterpiece.
5: <laughs>
4: Brava! <laughs>
0: Vivian, thank you so much for this tour. It's, it's been marvelous to hear the thinking behind the show and to see the works with you.
5: Thank you. It's been actually a great pleasure to talk with all of you.
0: And again, we're at the Guggenheim in New York City, and the show is up until September 1, so all of our listeners have plenty of time to come and check it out. Thanks again, Vivian. Thank
5: you. All
1: right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. Jacob, what do you got?
2: Uh, You know, I just saw a play at the Public Theater I really liked. It's called The Library. It's actually directed by Steven Soderbergh, who I didn't know he directed any plays before. And um, it's with his actress, Chloe Grace Moritz, who may be known to some of our uh, younger listeners. It's derived very heavily from Dave Cullen's book about Columbine, which I remember we ran some of the original pieces from in Slate. And it takes off of the idea that there was a school shooting in a place very much like Columbine and what happens in the community when they turn against this one woman who they think, accurately or not, was helpful to the killer's rather than the victims. And it's this sort of fascinating idea about, about mass psychology and that circumstance. I thought it was a super interesting play. It's on for a limited run at the public theater.
0: Fantastic. Did he just direct it or did he write it?
2: No, he. I think he was very closely involved in it. But the writer whose name I was not familiar with is, is credited. It's not Soderbergh. But I think it's his project.
0: All right. So he's sticking with his vow to stop making movies for, so for far. For a couple
2: months. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> Exciting.
2: All right, Julia, what do you got?
0: I want to recommend a web video. There was definitely some chatter when Colbert was bumped upstairs about the lack of women on uh, Primetime Late Night. And unless Colbert is taking on a very new character for his uh, new show, that will remain true. But Amy Schumer, who's the comedian with a show that's getting a lot of plaudits on Comedy Central, was one of the names that was kicked around as a possible late night contender. And she has a very, very funny video skewering Aaron Sorkin. And starring Josh Charles, who was one of the stars of Aaron Sorkin's early show, Sports Night, that is called The Food Room and has newsroom-style pomp and excess applied to working in a fast food environment. And if you just imagine Sorkinian flights of fancy and horrible gender politics put into a world where people are selling giggle meals and having arguments about apple slices versus curly fries, uh, you are beginning to imagine what a delightful video this is. So... I recommend the video. It's actually available to be seen on Slate.com's Browbeat Culture blog.
1: Excellent. All right. Well, what is the most poetic month, right? We're in it, right? April, you've got uh, you know the prologue to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And you've got, of course, April is the cruelest month, uh, the famous opening of The Wasteland, But there's another one that people always forget, which is that Frost, Robert Frost, you always have to go with a Frost poem early in spring, right, Julia?
0: For you, it seems to be year-round, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: A poem of his that I read very rarely actually is a great April poem. It's Two Tramps in Mud Time, which is very famous for the final stanza where he says, "Uh, my object in living is to unite my avocation with my vocation. But earlier on in the poem, he's got this great little riff about April, which is... um, uh, you know how it is with an April day when the sun is out and the wind is still. You're one month on in the middle of May. But if you so much as dare to speak, a cloud comes over the sunlit arch, a wind comes off a frozen peak, and you're two months back in the middle of March.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and then he goes on with other wonderful Frostian divagations. But it's a freaking wonderful poem, and I'd forgotten it, but I was having a little April jag and rediscovered it. So that is my
2: endorsement.
0: That's wonderful. That just sums up the week.
2: Well, since this year, it's April that came in like a lion, and hopefully we'll go out like some lesser creature. God willing,
1: absolutely. Mm -hmm. Jacob, let me just say that you are a a God Among Men, and that in the future, I will come up with better SAT words with which to suck up to you when you come on our show.
2: Well, from Lanyap to God, that's a pretty good show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we have a title. <laughs>
0: hey, Jacob, thanks for, uh, for filling in for Dana and Steve. I'm going to book you for my next vacation,
1: too. <laughs> Thank you both. It was fun doing it. Yeah, it was fun. Julia, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, Slate.com/slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com, or you can drop us a note at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman, our intern is Anna Schechtman, the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers, and our Twitter feed is Slate Cultfest. For Jacob Weisberg and Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll we'll see you soon.
3: Love. Sweet, sweet nutmeg On the 25th I'm gonna cover you with
5: My nutmeg Ooh, my sweet brown nutmeg
3: Girl, don't make me bang I want to know